Um, the reading tonight is from 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. <coughs> Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. <clears throat> not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. Just to remind ourselves of the, the occasion for this letter to be written, uh, John is writing to them for two purposes. One's negative, the other's positive. Negatively, it's to give them a test by which they can assess the teaching of people who are basically false teachers in their midst and who are trying, consciously or unconsciously, to sidetrack Christians from the Christian way. Positively, though, although uh, these uh, Christian readers have been unsettled by the false teaching, you know, they've come to kind of doubt their salvation in some way, um, if they apply the test to themselves and apply them soberly, they will realize that they are a genuine Christian and they will grow in confidence and assurance. So the letters to identify the phony and to raise the confidence are in the genuine. And we've seen three tests in operation before. Briefly, they are the moral test, obedience. Um, does their life, um, is it lived in accordance with what Christ commanded? Then there's the social test, love. Do they love one another? Do they display in their lives, not just their actions, um, but the kind of attitude that Jesus would want them to? And then thirdly, there's the doctrinal test, belief. Does their big picture of life, their framework of understanding, correspond to that of Christ? Do they think like Christ thinks? Tonight, we're just going to focus on the social test, love one another. It's in those few verses of uh, 1 John 4, 7 to 12. Now, why should Christians love one another? Love one another in just these six verses occurs three times. It's an exhortation in verse 7, let us love one another. It's a statement of duty in verse 11, we ought to love one another. And it's a hypothesis in verse 12, if we love one another. And the brief answer is, as to why we should love one another, is this, that God himself is love, verses 8 and 9, that God has defined what love is by demonstrating his love to us in Christ coming into the world, 10 and 11, and that he continues to love us, and through us, we now continue to demonstrate his love in the world long after the visible Christ has gone. So let's take them in turn. God is the origin of love, verses 7 and 8. Brotherly love is from God's eternal nature. And John starts off, dear friends, or literally beloved. You see, in urging them to love one another, 
he first assures them of his love. This writer is no hypocrite. He practices what he preaches to them. And the first reason why Christians should love each other is stated twice. Firstly, love comes from God, verse 7, and then God is love. Let's have a look at them. God is the origin or the source of love. All true love derives from him, and that means that everyone who loves either God or human beings with that selfless devotion, which alone comes from God and is true love, is literally or has been, John writes, born of God and knows God. And the other way this reason is expressed is that God actually is love. In his inmost being, he is love, verse 8, which I think is a clear indication of why the Trinity, the need for it, and its kind of foundation to the entire universe, um, why it's so true that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see... Religions of the world fall into one of three categories. There's monotheism, there's polytheism, and there's atheism. There's one God, or there are many gods, or there are no gods. One solitary God, and a lot, usually squabbling deities, or, of course, no divine beings at all. Now, the problem with the one solitary God is this. How can you be love or experience love on your own? If you're the only being who exists, I mean, how can you be love and how can you experience it? Love is something that has to be expressed and received to exist. So if you were shipwrecked on a desert island in the middle of the 19th century, or sometime in the future you were abandoned on Mars and all communication with Earth ceased, could you experience love? Well, possibly kind of you could remember what it was like, but I don't think you could have any fresh experience of it, could you? And a solitary God would not be a God of love. Now, Christianity is monotheistic. We're not polytheists. We believe in one God, but with a twist. One God, but three persons. Within the one God, there are three distinct persons, and love is what is expressed between them from all eternity. I know it's hard to get your head round the whole idea of the Trinity, and the very best illustrations of it are, always have their inbuilt weaknesses. But the fact that God is love and the source of love shows us the necessity that God is a trio of relationships in order for love to actually exist. So some illustrations are helpful, but as I'll show you, they all have their weaknesses. But they all help us get our head around the idea that it's not so much a contradiction or nonsense to think that God is a trinity of three persons but one God. Think of H2O. Water, the same mass of water, can be a liquid that you drink, it can be a gas which you exhale, it can be a solid that you add to your Coke or your J2O. Now, it's the same thing 
in three distinct ways, but its weakness is that it is impersonal as an illustration. So to get over that, we think of illustrations which are personal. We think, for example, of a man. He might sometimes be a husband, other times a father, other times a firefighter. But that's more like three distinct roles than three distinct persons. So you might opt for the kind of family model of father, mother, and child. But again, that's personal, but the downside is, of course, that there's a hint of subordinate role for the child in the trio. And so, and, and we know that in the Trinity, they are all of equal status, even though they have different roles to perform. The best illustration I know of is a book. A book exists in the mind of the author, and the author then expresses that, and it either turns out in paperback or on a tablet. And then the person who reads it has that book in their mind. So you have the book in three distinct places, but the book has actually got the same content. Well, we may struggle to understand how God is one substance but three persons, but if there is to be love, he has to be. There has to be more than one. They have to have a community of love in order for love to exist and for them to then share it with us. It's that essential characteristic of God, love, that he expects to see in his children. We read, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now all four of my children have a characteristic of mine. Fortunately for them, it's the one physical characteristic that I have, which even my wife will acknowledge is better than whatever she's got. And it's my hands. (laughs) (laughs) Which she says are um, effeminate. Which is the only thing that I've ever had said about me that's effeminate. If there's a kind of female side to me, it's uh, I've not discovered it in 60-odd years. But I'll... um, Now... I don't want you to inspect her hands when you next see her, because there's nothing wrong with her hands at all. They're just not quite so long and elegant, and my fingernails are nicer than hers. But as in case you're listening, dear, on the MP3, they're perfectly all right. Don't worry worried about them. And um, so she thinks they're feminine, which is an advantage for my daughters, Anna and Lydia, they were quite impressed with the choice of name for um, the Gearing's child that we, who was born on Friday. Um, but not so much for Dan and John. The point is, is that they, my children, have inherited a characteristic of mine, their father. And what John is saying here is that love is the characteristic that those born of God should display. If God is your father, then you should be like him. And his dominant characteristic is love. And you should be. And conversely, John says in verse 8, that those who do not love do not know God. So that's the first argument. The second argument for mutual love is based not on God's eternal nature but on his historical gift. The God who is love, verse 8, loved us, verse 10, 
and expressed his love by sending his son to earth. So the origin of love is in the nature of God and the demonstration of it, it coming out in the open for us to see, came in the coming of Christ. So we don't have some kind of airy-fairy notion, some abstract truth that God is love. No, we have a concrete fact. God sent his only son, one and only son, into the world for us. Now the fact that he's sending him means that the son pre-exists creation and that he is divine, that he is not part of the created order. So in 9 and 10, in the one and only Son, God's love is on display. Doubtless God's love has existed between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit for all eternity, but it's been unseen by anybody. Now he's saying it has been seen among us in Jesus, which is mentioned twice here. The first time as the revelation of his love, verse 9, God showed his love among us, and then to define what love is, its essence, verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's the atoning sacrifice that defines what love is. So let's take these two things, that he, the fact that he sent his son into the world, verse 9, and what the atoning sacrifice, verse 10, is. Now, for those of you who are born in Basingstoke, you probably either think that there is nowhere better than Basingstoke, or you might think there's nowhere worse than Basingstoke. Either way, you're speculating out of ignorance. For those of us who've migrated here, what we think of it depends on where we've come from. So if you take kind of Stephen, you know, our trainee, he's come here from Swindon via Southampton, a fairly grotty part of Southampton, I used to live there. Um, or if you take Will, he has migrated here, he's the lead guitarist this evening, um, he's come to us from Derby via Reading. So both of those guys, you could say, are definitely on the up in life, aren't they? <laughs> but for me, I came here from Winchester, central Winchester. I also have lived in some very nice parts of the country. Um, I lived round the corner from the Royal Crescent in Bath once. And I had a friend who lived in the top in one of the Royal Crescent houses. I've lived in Clifton in Bristol near the Suspension Bridge, another Georgian place, and I've lived among the dreaming spires of Oxford. For me, you might think that coming to Basingstoke was a come down, but those of you who know me quite well know that the full story is that I come from northeast Kent and um, where people who, um, well, people, yeah, people I, in my town, they became actors in EastEnders. They didn't act because they didn't have to. They just be themselves. Because if you do well in the East End, you end up in North East Kent, you see. You've arrived. But I tell you, going from there to here is definitely coming up in the world. However, Christ, in coming to Earth, certainly went down from a place of perfect love and harmony 
to a place of trouble and strife. And Christians have long emulated Christ in their lifetime of service. One was a Belgian Roman Catholic called Father Damien. He was born in 1840 and he devoted his life to the care of leprosy sufferers. In 1863, Father Damien sailed as a missionary to Hawaii and he was horrified by the plight of leprosy victims who had been permanently banished to the island of Molokoi. Here he, they eat out a miserable existence in disease, filth and poverty without either family or church to sustain them. Father Damien volunteered to go and live among them. He buried their dead. He brought them hygiene. He built churches and chapels, cleaned their water supply, improved their homes and their hospital, constructed an orphanage, trained a choir, and served as their teacher, carpenter, mason, priest, and friend. This selfless ministry of his continued for 16 years until one Sunday morning in 1885, during church worship, the congregation was stunned when he began his sermon with the words, we lepers, indicating that he had contracted the disease himself. And he died in Molokoi in 1889, age 49. He'd given his life, modelled on Christ to others in need because he loved them like Christ loved them. And then the second way in which uh, Christ coming to the earth reveals his love, in fact defines it, is in this line in verse 10, that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, it says, propitiation is the word, for our sins. And it's vital to understand this because this is right at the very heart of the cross and it's the very heart of the Christian faith and so it is right at the very heart of the character of God himself. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings, as we've been working our way through Genesis 4 to 11, you will have read how God, is, God became grieved by the wickedness of human beings and the suffering that they caused others through their wickedness. God had said before Adam sinned, if you sin, you will die. Adam sinned, but he didn't die immediately. In one sense, he did die. He was excluded from the presence of God and he became spiritually dead. Still kind of you know, aware of God, still with a conscience, but not a harmonious, peaceful, accepted relationship with God. His physical death was postponed. It was delayed by the mercy of God in the hope that Adam and Eve might come to their senses, return to God through repentance and faith. As far as we know, they never did. Later on, things got so bad that God gave human beings 120 years notice that he was going to destroy their particular part of the world through the flood because the sin they had committed was just so wicked and so awful and so destructive. But he gave them 120 years to come to their senses and repent. But they didn't. So being a God of justice as well as a God of love, he had to punish them and the flood came. But he graciously allowed Noah and his family to be saved. 
Are we today still live in a time of God's mercy? He promised after the flood that he would never destroy the world again until that is the day of the Lord, the day of his appearing, the day of his return, when there will be a perfect heaven and a perfect earth recreated. But on that day of Christ's return, there will be judgment before there's recreation. And God will keep his promise. He will exercise his promise that if you sin, you will die. So those in this life who have remained spiritually dead, those who have died and their body is separated from their spirit, but their spirit is still separated from Christ, and those who are alive on the day of his return, God will judge everybody rightly. And to be excluded from the presence of God forever is eternal death, or the second death, the Bible calls it. And God has to keep his word. And that gives us security and stability in understanding life. He will punish everyone with death who uh, rebels against his authority and causes so much grief. That's a very grim prospect. But he has also worked out a way in which sin can be punished for justice to be exacted for his wrath against sin and sinners to be satisfied. And that is by he himself, in the person of his son, that he's come to earth to suffer the punishment for us. Now for that substitution to work, the substitute has to be human to represent us. That substitute also has to be a perfect human being who does not need to be punished. But since there are no perfect human beings, that human being must also be divine to have any chance of being perfect. So you can see why it is we have to have Jesus. And on the cross, he cried, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or why have you excluded me? And the sky in the middle of the day went black, symbolizing the fact that at that moment, for those three hours, Christ was suffering the penalty for sins, our sins, in our place. He was being excluded from the presence of a conscious relationship with God, his Father, and God, the Holy Spirit. That was punishment for him. He'd not experienced that ever before. And that's what we mean when we sing in that hymn, "'Tis finished, the Messiah dies, cut off for sin, but not his own." Accomplished is the sacrifice, the great redeeming work is done. Tis finished, all the debt is paid, justice divine is satisfied, the grand and full atonement made, God for a guilty world has died. Now that, of course, puts an obligation on us You see, if we have handed over, if we've dumped our sin on Jesus so that he can be punished for it, and therefore we don't have to be, then we have an obligation. If he's given his life for us, we in response, in gratitude, give our life to him. We owe it to him. uh, John says, dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to to love one another. And the early church of the first and second century AD were renowned for doing just that. Paul Johnson is a distinguished historian, 
writing about that period of history, he says, the Christians ran a miniature welfare state in a Roman Empire which for the most part lacked social services. The Christian Tertullian, who lived between 150 AD and 220 AD, explained how this kind of welfare system functioned. He writes, there was no buying or selling or any other sort of, of any sorts of things of God. Because in those days, kind of religion was a real kind of racket financially. Though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money, as of a religion that has its price. On the monthly day, if he likes, each puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure, and only if he is able, for there's no compulsion, all is voluntary. These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund, for they are not taken thence and spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls of destitute means, and parents, and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines, you can think of Ben-Hur or banished to the islands, or shut up in prisons, for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. In other words, the church looks after them. And as we come to an end, to the third reason why we should love one another, verse 12, we read that God continues to love in and through us. So we're not just to think of God's love as only existing in God's eternal being, or as just historically displayed in sending his son, Jesus, into the world. God, who is love, still loves today, and today his love is seen in our love, in his Christian's love. Now, God is love, and no man has seen God. So John says at the beginning of the Gospel, 1.18, the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus demonstrates God's love towards the human race. Now here in 1 John, the letter 4.12, he writes, if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. That's to say that the unseen God, once seen in his Son, is now seen, or meant to be seen, in his people, if and when they love one another. God's love is seen in their love, because their love is his love imparted by his Spirit. The words don't mean that when we begin to love, God comes to live in us, but the reverse. Our love for one another is evidence of God living in us, God's living presence in our lives. So reciprocal Christian love means not only that God lives in us, but also that his love is made complete some version says, perfected in us, verse 12. Well, 
to make complete really means to reach the end of. So you can see the kind of uh, process at work here, can't you? Why we are Christians um, and we should love one another. It starts off, its origin is in the love between the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Then the Son comes to earth to show love and to give his life, to demonstrate God's love for us so that we can be reconciled to him. And then by doing so, God lives in us individually and so collectively as Christians. And we return that love to God and we return that love to him in another indirect way through our love for other people who then can love God. God's love is completed. It has done what it is supposed to do. When it's reproduced in his people, in Christian fellowship, and expressed back to him and to his people. I came across this interview recently with, uh, in the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity magazine with uh, Professor John Wyatt, who spoke here a few years ago and is now the Emeritus Professor of Perinatology at University College Hospital London. He spent his life looking after very sick babies, newborns. And he shares that, you know, there's a lot of pressure in that kind of job. Now, if you're a consultant in elderly care, what used to be called a geriatrician, and you look after elderly people, their relatives kind of expect that if they're 95, that they're probably going to die soon. But if you've got desperately concerned new parents with a baby who's just a few days or weeks old, they don't expect their newborn to die. There's a lot of pressure in that kind of branch of medicine. In the interview, he's asked, was there a means of support that you found particularly helpful? And he replied like this, I do think there is a whole theology of friendship that, to a large extent, we've lost in the modern world. We don't understand friendship, don't see it as important, we don't value it. In the secular world, we've collapsed the distinction between friendship and genital sexual relationships. To modern people, two people of the same gender who are very close friends are thought to probably be gay. The only way we can understand a close relationship is sexually. And yet it seems to be in biblical thinking that those two kinds of relationship are completely different. So there's a sexual relationship that is heterosexual, unique, lifelong, exclusive. And then there's friendship, which is equally important, but is different. It is non-sexual, but intimate and open and vulnerable and committed. And I've been very fortunate in that I've had just a small number of those kinds of friendships, which have been a wonderful experience of intimacy, of openness, of sharing, and of mutual vulnerability. That kind of friendship has to be nurtured and is a precious thing. One of the things I've always, I always say to medical students and junior doctors is that now is the time to develop the friendships that will last a lifetime. 
and which are going to be a foundation and a resource. There's a wonderful thing that Bernard of Clairvaux said, that Christ himself kisses us through the love of our friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've seen this evening, how love originates from your very eternal self, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from that community of love. How you've demonstrated it to us by living in our world in a way we can see, and particularly by sacrificing yourself and your relationship so that our sins could be justly punished and we could be forgiven. And we realize we owe you an obligation. And we realize that we... uh, often fall short of fulfilling it. We pray that we might draw upon the example of Christ, the desire of the Father, and the inspiring resources of the Holy Spirit enable us to basically do better. We do that out of gratitude to you, and because we know that what we have received, you would want shared with others. Amen.